Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to CHSRHealthyLife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. CHSRHealthyLife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. Welcome, everybody. Tune in to Marianne Live. I'm Marianne Camarado. And like I always say, great relationships begin within. Yeah, ponder that for a moment. We are relational creatures. Relationships are, for me, a lifelong passion trying to understand how to cultivate relationship in sort of the four quadrants of our lives, our relationship with ourself, our relationship in partnership, our relationship in the spiritual realm, and our relationship to the greater humanity, right? Our, our relationship to culture, society, our um, community, all of that good stuff. So if you're tuning in for the first time, we are devoted and committed to helping you attract and create healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship in those four areas. And further... Uh, totally devoted to helping you take all that information that is wonderful information that we gather up in our minds and and then cherry-picking that, moving it down into your lived experience so that these great bits of information can help inform the way you move through the world. So those of you returning again and again, you're like, yeah, 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 got it, let's do our practice because that's the other thing we like to do here, support you in cultivating a practice, a practice that brings you into awareness. The first thing that we like to do is invite you to get present. What does that even mean? Most of us say, yeah, I'm here. What are you talking about? I'm present. And yet we are often doing several things at once and we're not totally here. So what a gift to be able to just take this time in this moment, find your breath, and arrive. Let yourself have this hour, the gifts that our guest is bringing you today, letting whatever offerings come be able to move through those mental filters all the way into your embodied experience. So just take a moment and land. If you're driving, you have to maintain that dual awareness. Be very careful. Noticing your breath is secondary, even tertiary. For the rest of you, if you're walking or sitting or in a comfortable position, just go ahead and find that breath and let it deepen. Noticing your body beginning to relax. Bring your awareness to the quality of your breath. You might notice your shoulders start to move away from your earlobes. Maybe your teeth come apart slightly, your tongue resting in your mouth, your belly softening just slightly. 
as you arrive and land, turning our attention to the next part of our practice, which is cultivating that perspective of gratitude, which I always like to say is, is not an easy thing. We don't just snap into gratitude, some of us. Some of us are struggling. We feel frustrated. We feel overwhelmed. We are trying to figure out how to take this information and make our lives better. And let's hurry up about it, right? Totally get that. And we're dealing with a lot. Things that we're powerless over, which it seems are more and more of those kinds of things happening in our lives, our jobs, our children, our bodies, our wellness, our illness, aging parents, and on and on, loss, grief, our psychological well-being. It's a lot to manage. So gratitude helps us expand, pull that microscope out, focusing on the hyper-focusing on survival and really allowing us to get a bigger perspective of what we're doing here on the planet, right? And I'd like to invite you to just imagine someone or a group of people that help make it possible for you to do what you're doing right now. That's generally the quickest way I have found to find my way into a real relationship that's that's authentic with gratitude. Who helps make it possible for you to eat the food that was part of your last meal, the clothes on your back, the house that you live in or the dwelling or the car that you drive or the electronic device that you use and on and on, the cement underneath your feet didn't come that way. <laughs> All right, so just find some place, find your way in, and you might notice that life gets bigger and wider, and there's a sense of being right with the world when we feel grateful. And just letting yourself have this moment as you're breathing and feeling grateful and choosing to tune into Healthy Life at that radio, it's another really wonderful choice, a healthy choice for yourself. Yeah. All right, so let's transition as you're breathing and noticing your your attitude of gratitude, as they say, and let's talk about our guest today. Author Stephen Gaines is joining us. He's written a new book, One of These Things First, is the title of his new memoir. Um, our best-selling author, um, he is a journalist, uh, and his work has appeared in Vanity Fair, The New York Observer, The New York Times, and so on and so forth. And he's joining us today to talk about growing up gay in Brooklyn in the 60s, um, among other things, being uh, institutionalized at a very young age, what that was like for him, and sharing with us the many insights. Uh, some are hilarious and the others are so poignant and moving. Um, but it's a, a subject that I think so many of us are grateful that we are in conversation about this expanded sense of our sexuality and identity, um, uh, the schemas that we have about ourselves uh, in terms of our mental illness, and hearing from people who have the courage to share with us their journey out loud helps the rest of us feel like we can expand more fully into the complexity of being human. And Stephen is joining us this hour to talk with us about his book, and we're so glad you're here, Stephen. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've written a billion books. 
that's an exaggeration. But I was looking through your website, and so you've been writing for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about when you started writing and why. Well, I, I went to NYU Film School, and when I got out of, of, of film school, I was qualified to do absolutely nothing. So <laughs> I got, well, that's what film school was like back then. Now it's much more hands-on, and, and it's terrific. But back then, if you went to film school, you were an oddball anyway. So I got a job. The only job I really could get was moving furniture at a downscale auction gallery in, in uh, lower Manhattan. And uh, we used to go out and tag the furniture. We used to go out to houses on Long Island and tag the furniture for sale on Saturday. The people had either passed away or were moving to Florida. It, same difference it was. I had, I had no idea. But in any event, um, every night I took the 20 bucks that I got, and I went to a place called Max's Kansas City. And Max's Kansas City, so many important things happened to me in that place. It, it's what Lenny Bruce would have called a, a character parlor. There were all sorts of crazy people in and out, people bouncing off the walls, a bunch of regulars, artists and writers. And it was really a great place. And a guy came in one night, tall guy with curly blonde hair, and insinuated himself at our table and said that his name was Marjo, a combination of Mary and Joseph, and that when he was six years old, he was ordained by his mother and father, who were Pentecostal ministers and that he uh, married a couple in Long Beach, and the picture appeared in newspapers all over the nation, and he went on the Pentecostal, he went on the 10th Circuit. By the time he was 12 years old, he raised, uh, he made like $2 million or something. Oh, my, come on. So I said to him, I said to him, How do I get in on this racket? That's a book. That's a book. That's, you know... And he said to me, well, they're talking about making a documentary about me, but how, how do I find a writer? So I said, I'm a writer. Talk about seizing the moment. I mean, I hadn't written more than my name on a check that probably had bounced. So, but I said, I'm a writer. So he said, if you can sell this book, you can write it. And that was, you know, a, a big challenge. And um, so I went home and I wrote my first book proposal ever. I didn't know how to write a book proposal, but I'll always remember the opening words. There were thousands of them out there every night. They came from the flat plains of the Midwest and the big cities of the East. They came to see Marjo, the miracle child, anointed of God. And to cut this story short, I found an agent. I called people on the telephone. I insinuated myself into somebody's office, an agent named Shirley Bernstein. She read the proposal. She sold it. Two weeks later, I actually had a book contract. I didn't know how to write, but I wrote those nine pages, and I had a book contract. And that's how my career started. And, yeah. and wait, the punchline to this is, the following year, 1973, the movie of Marjo won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Wow. Talk about an amazing thing, right? Yeah, exactly. That's how I started. That's how I got into my, my career. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful story. And uh, your journey writing uh, has a particular theme. Let's talk about that. You like to write about very unique kinds of individuals. Tell us about that. It started, I guess, with Marjo. Everybody said, no, oh, you're a biographer. So um, I wrote very many, I wrote a lot of biographies. First, I wrote Alice Cooper's autobiography. It was the first autobiography of, uh, of a rock star ever published. I went on the road with him and lived with him for a year. That was thrilling. Um, and then I did uh, a whole series of uh, other music business biographies. I did uh, The Beatles. 
and the Beach Boys. And then I think I switched for a moment to fashion designers. I did Calvin Klein and Halston. Um, and then I started writing biographies of places. You know, there was a wonderful story in the New Yorker many years ago, and it was about a ghostwriter. And the ghostwriter's written books for so many other people that he can't remember who he is anymore. So the psychiatrist says to him, what you would need to do is sit down and write your own book. So the first thing he did was he went out and hired a ghostwriter. So <laughs> I tell you that particular story because I wrote about so many other people, and I wanted so badly to tell my own story. Yeah, yeah. And, um, exactly. And that's here we how are. it happened. Yeah, mm -hmm. and here we are. You've written your own story. If you're just joining us, Stephen Gaines is with us today. One of those, one of these things first is the name of his uh, latest work of art, a memoir. He's written for us. We're talking about that this hour. So let's talk about some common themes and why, you know, I get that, the, that you, that opportunity knocked, right? There was something extraordinary in Marjo that you saw. But there's some other themes that run through all of uh, the, the individuals and places uh, that you chose. Let's talk about that. Ones that sort of may not been may not have been obvious right off. Well, they all had. Uh, most of them had. There were substance, substance abuse challenges. You know, Alice Cooper's been sober now for a very long time. The Beach Boys, of course, Dennis. Dennis Wilson drank himself to death virtually, and 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 there was you know uh, drug use hurt their careers more than even their family squabbling. Um, you, I could go on through all of them. Halston, um, mm -hmm. who died of HIV, but um, you know has his judgment very badly impaired by you know cocaine constantly. So I think that's one theme that goes through all all of those books. Mm-hmm. And, and this was below your awareness or you were just fascinated? I mean, you know, what, what do you remember knowing about each time you would finish something? Because you were clearly on some kind of personal journey as well as being an advocate for these people's extraordinary lives, right? There was something trying to emerge in your own psyche, I think. What do you think that was? Well, I mean, it, it's true that uh, many people have extraordinary lives that would be boring. I think the problem is, the, not the problem, but I think the thing is is that you, you have to have confronted some sort of an issue or problem and, and uh, solve that or sometimes not. You know, it, it's about defining moments. Um, what you're going to do when something bad happens. And I think mm -hmm. that's probably, you know, I mean, Alice finally sobered up. Dennis never did. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just, you know, uh, so I think that's probably part of the, of the theme of mm -hmm. what, what makes a, a book more salable is if somebody has, you know, conquered their fears or their problems or, I, I make a joke, you know, biography, um, well, first of all, let me say, and this isn't the joke, but first of all, I get phone calls all the time now from people who want me to write their autobiography for them. And I always say the same thing, other than the money, why? And everybody wants to be remembered. And it's a very, very common thread, and we all do want to be remembered. We want to leave something behind. We want to, whether it be children or that we've written something or that we've created something or helped people. I think it's a, a, a common I think it's a common desire and a noble one too. And now with self-publishing and, and videotapes and all of, all of those things, we all can uh, leave something behind. And what 
what makes our story special is not the uniqueness, but the commonality that we all have parents, we all had problems, we all dealt with the same issues in one way or another. And this is how we dealt and how we solved them or how we didn't solve them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like this idea of defining moments as well, though. You know, we all do want to leave a mark, and it's sort of a genetic, uh, uh, unconscious drive that we all have. Uh, they say it's a very masculine part of ourselves that exists in, you know, both men and women. But uh, this defining moments, there's something really intriguing uh, about that. Let, let's talk. We're going to go to break here in just a minute, but let's start talking about that. You, your book is filled with your life-defining moments, but before we get to that, clearly it, it took you a long time before you, you know, decided to sidle up to your own self and find who you really were, like you said, in some way, in a way that you hadn't known before. Um, uh, what was a defining moment for you in terms of, hey, it's time for me to write my memoir? Well, I... I wanted to write it for a very long time. Um, I joke, I say 55 years, because it happened when I was 15 years old, and I'm going to be 71 in November. It took me a very, very long time to to understand um, to how to write this down and what the story really was about, because 20, 30 years ago, it would have been a pity party. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and that's very important. I yeah. had to understand myself better. And I kind of like that. Defining moments are not really the moment, are they? They're sort of the, the paradoxes. It's the lifetime that built up or uh, was inherited, right? The, the, it's the moment and not, right? The an entire lifetime of experience. Well, we're going to go to break here, everybody. Sit tight. We're going to be back in just a minute. Um, Stephen Gaines is with us. One of these things first is the title of his new book. When we return, we'll talk more with Stephen when we get back. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No More Love Life Drama for Us. Hi, everybody. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Raynaud. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce yet? We spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, the Great Relationships Begin Within Self-Inquiry Divination Deck, because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. 
Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Lide and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. .com. Okay, so you have a couple of days off and you're planning to get away from stress. You may be planning to go across the world or even taking a staycation around town. Well, Hotels.com can get you a room in over 158,000 hotels, 60 countries for 50% off. That's reducing stress already. Plus, collect 10 nights and you'll get one night free. And there's no cancellation charges, no change fees. For the best deals, even last-minute deals, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Hotels.com. Music, information, and friends. HealthyLife.net. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Author Stephen Gaines is with us today talking about his new book, One of These Things First, a memoir. Stephen, uh, we were talking before the break about, you know, the books that you've written over your lifetime, um, how you came to be a biographer, and then ultimately um, at this point of your life, uh, you decided to tell your own story. And your story is really filled with uh, defining moments, but one in particular, and we want to start there. Uh, Fifteen years old, you made a decision that, that changed the entire course of your life. Let's talk about what led up to that. There you were living on the East Coast. Uh, tell us a little bit about the climate, the environment, your family background a little bit. Well, I lived in a, a wonderful place, Brooklyn. But this is not the popular, uh, you know, hip Brooklyn of today. Uh, yeah. This was, it was like a little tiny village. Um, and uh, where I lived, Borough Park, the section of Brooklyn, was very old-fashioned. Even though Manhattan was only a half an hour away by train, uh, we were much more provincial. And the, I would say that the, the makeup was definitely one-third Irish, one-third Italian, and one-third Jewish. And we all got along famously. And we all shared each other's culture. And as a little Jewish boy, I went to church to see communions and weddings and stuff. I, it, it was actually, it was great. Uh, but one thing that uh, we didn't know about in Brooklyn um, very much or at all was homosexuality. And when I was 10 or 11 years old, um, I realized that I had feelings for other boys. And there was no, it gets better. There wasn't even the word gay. It didn't exist. I was a homo. I was nature's mistake. And it was hard for me at 11 or 12 or 13 to figure out where to turn or how this was going to evolve. The only other person I knew uh, who was vaguely like me, who I heard my parents talking about and making fun of, was Christine Jorgensen, who was, of course, transsexual and was one of the first people that we knew of to get that operation, he went to Sweden and, and had that operation. All I knew was that he was castrated. And I thought that maybe I'd have to be castrated or did I have to wear women's clothing. I had no desire for either, but I didn't know what my fate was going to be. And um, when I went to synagogue or looked to the Bible um, for help, um, it said that I had to be murdered. I, they should pour hot oil in my ears. In, in Leviticus. So 
It was very disturbing. I knew I was going to be different. I knew I had an ugly secret. I knew I wouldn't have children or anybody to love. And um, and I, I really hated myself very, very deeply. And the older I got when I was 15, you know, in your height of, of, of uh, the hormones are surging through your body, surging through your body, I just couldn't bear it anymore. I just, I just couldn't bear it. And, and something else happened. I was bullied. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, children who are bullied are twice as likely to commit suicide now, nowadays. You know, gay and lesbian children are four times as likely to commit suicide as straight children. And if they've been bullied, it doubles that risk. So we didn't know any of this when I was a child, but I, I guess somehow people knew they could tell. I don't know if I was an effeminate little boy. I don't know what the signal was that I gave off, but maybe just that it was odd and different. But there were two men who owned the luncheonette on the corner and had a big plate glass window that faced the street and a griddle. And everybody, you know, I, I should preface this by saying I grew up on top of my grandmother's bra and girdle store. And if there's anything that's going to make you gay, it's growing up above a bar and girl store. <laughs> I, I saw things that no seven-year-old should see. So, For example, the, you can't just throw that out there. Like, for example. Well, you know, no, there were no gyms back there. Nobody went to a gym. You know, some of the ladies were, you know, 48 quadruple Ds or something. I used to, you know, the curtains were sometimes open in the dressing room. You know, I saw these things that these torture devices that women were putting on and being fitted for. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a weird introduction to the female mm -hmm. form. Mm -hmm. to the female body. Um, it didn't seem appetizing to me at all. But there were many saleswomen in that store, and they all had something to say about me and how bad I was and this and that. And they were, like, definitely anti-Little Stephen. And so, um, but they all went to this luncheonette every day. That's where everybody went to get a cup of coffee and an English muffin in and out, in and out of this luncheonette. And one day I was there with my grandmother and the guys that owned it, Arnie and Irv, one of them said, I whistled, and one of them said to the other, hey, what whistles, um, a fairy or a bird? Um, and um, I wanted the ground to open up. I mean, I really wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. It was a nightmare. My grandmother turned all wet, red. I mean, it made no sense because fairies don't whistle and birds chirp. So, But I knew they were getting at And then after that, I... Um, I couldn't walk by the front, big front windows. They would give me the limp wrist or they would mince around or something, and they really had it in for me. And I, they, they tortured me so, they tortured me so much, they tortured me so much that I, um, I couldn't walk in front of the store, in front of their store. Mm -hmm. So, um, I had to walk all the way around the block to get to the corner. So that and the way I was feeling and all the rest, I started touching things twice and I was like a little volcano ready to blow. And um, so I decided it would be best to dispatch myself. Mm -hmm. And touching things twice, people might not understand what you mean. You started getting compulsive um, and, and so forth. Talk about that, because this is a really important part of the way people try to comfort themselves. Yes, it's true. And, and you know, if, if, 
If it was the kind of comp um, compulsive, obsessive compulsive disorder that people are uh, take medicine for now, it would have been different. But it, it really wasn't that it, because I, I had all this stuff boiling because it wouldn't have gone away. Although I do have a little OCD now, I had all this stuff boiling up inside of me, and um, I developed the uh, the need. If I saw something on the ground, I had to have it. If it, even if it was a dirty, you know, stick. Um, or with ants crawling on it, I would put it in my pocket. And sometimes I would have a compulsion to take things that weren't mine. Um, and then I had to touch things twice or count up to two. Mm -hmm. I had all these crazy things, you know, and they took me to the family doctor to try to explain it. And he said, oh, there's a touching disease. And then he said to me, uh, why do you do these strange things? Well, if I knew why I did those strange things. <laughs> I wouldn't be here. I mean, I was 12 or 13, so not only are they, you know, uh, am I being teased, do I have these horrible, revolting thoughts in my head about other boys, um, but now I'm, I'm touching things and I'm counting. So um, I, um, I made a very serious suicide attempt. I didn't just take a couple of aspirins. I really, really tried to dispatch myself, and, uh, and that's, that's what happened there. Yeah, which uh, when you get a copy of the book, folks, the the description of your attempt uh, is really quite uh, unsettling. It's it's very moving and disturbing. And uh, we're talking about Stephen Gaines' new memoir, one of these things first. Um, Stephen, what was happening with your parents? Uh, uh, we're going to talk about that when we get back to the break. What was going on for them and their relationship to... My dad uh, was a, a child guidance counselor. Yeah, I'll tell you yeah. more about that after yeah. the break, but, right. you know, the shoemaker's children have no shoes. That's right. We'll be back right <laughs> after these messages, folks. Sit tight. We'll be back in just a minute. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've, We've ordered, ordered No More, more love, love Life Drama, drama for, for Us. Shh, over here. Here's a secret for a virus-free computer. ESET, they've been a pioneer in the antivirus industry for over 25 years. 25 years of innovative, top-rated antivirus protection. ESET's award-winning security solutions provide a safe online experience for over 100 million home and business computer owners. They are so affordable, fast, and simple to use. So be gone, you blue screen of death. ESET's on my computer. If it's not on yours, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on ESET now. Did you know that in seven minutes you might save $522 on car insurance? Well, this makes sense. Since 21st Century Insurance's company's website has been rated number one in responsiveness by Keynote, 
Serving customers since 1958, 21st Century Insurance has a 24-7 online policy and claim service. You can get a quote fast and easy, so get your quote by visiting HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click right on the 21st Century Insurance banner. More exhilarating talk, HealthyLife.net. everybody. We're so glad you're joining us today. Stephen Gaines is with us. One of these things first is the title of his new memoir. Stephen, we were talking about your parents. Uh, your dad was a guidance counselor, and, you know, what, what was going on with your folks? Did they know what was happening for you on and, and some level? What, what, what was their uh, posture and attitude towards, towards you at this time? Well, I mean, oh, they certainly knew it. I mean, I, I stopped going to school. I was touching things, and you know, twice, and had also obsessive compulsive disorders. And obviously, I had some other terrible, terrible secret that was going on. I mean, everybody in the neighborhood just thought I was crazy. Uh, that's what people called me. I was crazy. It was hard to be to be 14 years old and crazy, and not go to school, and you know, and be surrounded by the bra and girdle store and stuff. My father was a school teacher. He got you know, it's amazing. He did very, very well academically because he didn't really have any street smarts. He didn't have an emotional smartness to him, I don't think. And he was very, very annoyed with all my issues and troubles. It was more like, cut that out. You've got to cut mm-hmm. this out, mister. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so I thought I actually probably could cut it out, but some yeah. bad thing in me wasn't allowing me to cut it. I didn't know. My mom was lovely. She worked in the bra and girdle store. Um, she was very sweet, and I know it broke her heart to see me so unhappy. Mm-hmm. So there you are, attempting uh, to take your life at 15, almost succeeding, and you end up institutionalized. Let's talk about how that was for you. Oh my, it must have been terrifying. And you, you do go into great detail in the book, but just in general, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, I mean, the funny thing about this book is that it's funny. It's really hysterical. Everybody reads it, and they can't believe how funny it is. It's it's kind of like David Sedaris or the book Running with Scissors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talk about a defining moment. I won't tell them why I tried to do this to myself, because then I'd have to say I'm a homo. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I don't want to do that, and I can't do that. I can't bring those words up. So because I won't do that and they can't feel secure that I won't try to hurt myself again, they decide that I should go to a hospital, and they're going to put me in a state hospital. They're going to put me in a state And, you know, here's the crazy thing. <laughs> if all of that wasn't crazy, here's the crazy thing. When they, when they put it to me, when they say, you need to be hospitalized, you're going to go to a hospital, I, there was a movie theater on the corner from the Braun Girdle store, and um, I could go there for free at any time. It was huge. Usually it was empty during the day. I went there like other kids turn on the TV because it was lonely. And I saw every single movie there for years and years, maybe thousands of movies, probably why I wound up in film school. And the one movie that I saw that I fell in love with was Splendor in the Grass. And if you remember... That movie was about Deanie, Natalie Wood, wanted desperately to sleep with Warren Beatty, who was Bud. But her mother kept on saying, good girls don't sleep with boys before marriage, good girls. And I felt that same kind of thing. 
I wanted so badly to have some sexual expression, but it, you know, it was a disgusting, was a bad thing. And Natalie Wood has a nervous breakdown, and she goes to this wonderful psychiatric, this wonderful mental hospital, you know, out on the plains in Georgia, and people are painting on the lawn, and she has this smart, um, fatherly doctor who helps her through. So I thought that's where I would go. So when they mm -hmm. said you have to go to a mental hospital, I said okay. But it turned out they were going to put me in a state hospital. Mm -hmm. I would not be here on the phone talking to you if that had happened. Mm -hmm. I would have been in the mental health system the rest of my entire life. So this is another defining moment. Mm -hmm. I was, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wasn't going to go to that hospital. I was, they were waiting for a bed. And late at night, I saw a television news report, Marilyn Monroe, and she was leaving a hospital. And they said that she had just been fired that day from a new movie called Something Gotta Give. And that last summer, she had had a nervous breakdown and went to the Harvard of all psychiatric clinics, Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic. So I said, oh, that's where I should go, where Marilyn Monroe went. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go where Marilyn Monroe went. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> I made the decision. I said, I will not go to. You know, if they didn't know I was gay at this point, they would never know. Right? Exactly. You know? I, I, will, I will not go to a state hospital. You have to carry me down the steps, kicking and screaming. But if you pay for me to go to this very expensive, very exclusive hospital. And my poor grandfather, who owned the bar and girdle store, who knew since what, how tortured I was, said, I will find this money I have savings and I will and I will pay this for you I remember it was it was a hundred dollars a day it was three thousand dollars a month which now is like saying it was ten thousand dollars a month or fifteen thousand dollars a month but so I went to Payne Whitney and my life changed it was wonderful I wanted to stay longer but this is a whole other. This is, yeah. this is a you gotta buy the book, people. <laughs> right. I mean, I met such great people. I mean, I met really, really terrific people who absolutely changed my life. At, at what point? At what point did you get to speak openly about your uh, being gay? Um, it wasn't in the hospital, was it? No, it was. It was. It was. It was in the hospital. Um, the psychiatrist that uh, they assigned to me. Uh, he was very smart. He was great. He was only 30 years old at the time. He had already been a surgeon and then decided to become a psychiatrist. And he also understood. He knew that I was lying to him and not telling him the truth. And um, I, he, I, happened, I mentioned to him that um, Splendor in the Grass was my favorite movie. And he said, why? And then I said, oh, because of the photography. I mean, I didn't want to say to him, I was in love with Warren Beatty, and I felt like I was Natalie Wood. And, you know, I didn't want to say any of that. Mm -hmm. But he said to me, isn't that movie about a, a girl who has a nervous breakdown because she has sexual desires that she's not allowed to consummate? Mm -hmm. And I pretended I didn't know that. And he was annoyed with me. He was annoyed. He wasn't going to say anything, but he was just kind of annoyed. He cut the session short. So that night I thought, I have to tell somebody. I have to tell somebody. So I wrote on a piece of paper, I think oh, right. I am a homosexual. Mm. In big capital letters I wrote, I think I am a homosexual. And I folded it up and put it in an envelope addressed to him and stuck it in the, in the nurse's office uh, mailbox. And uh, that's how it started. Mm. Yeah, and so curiously, you thought somehow if you were converted to a heterosexual lifestyle, all of this pain and suffering would go away. Let's talk about that because this is a very, fairly common um, 
orientation, especially for a young person to want to make this awful thing, quote unquote, go away and to conform, right? Well, I, you know, I guess even today, with everybody is so enlightened, I think, you know, it's just like probably to a young kid just seems like a, another burden, something, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's nothing that I think anybody particularly wishes for. So when you're a kid, you have to um, just say, oh, this is who I am and it's okay, but everybody, you've been so inculcated to believe, talk about schema, you know, you've been yeah, yeah. so inculcated to believe that this is a bad thing and it's second rate and even if people are accepting you now. So you, you just don't, you don't feel like doing that. And, you know, what happened was is when I finally said to Dr. Wayne Myers that I was a homosexual, he saw... I mean, I didn't know any way out. There was no It Gets Better. There was no Trevor Foundation. There was no anything. So uh, he said to me, um, I can help you uh, if you want. You can be heterosexual. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you later more after we come back. But in 1962, if you told a young gay boy he could be straight, he would have pressed that button. Yes, straight. Yeah. No, no doubt. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about conversion therapy, what it is for, for some of us who don't know, and, and more when we return with Stephen Gaines. One of these things first is the title of his new memoir. We're, we're going to be back right after these messages. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No No More More Love Love Life Life Drama Drama for Us. MarianneLive.com is where you can go to keep up to date with what and where relationship expert, author, and radio host Marianne Camarado is appearing next. Besides Marianne's three radio shows weekdays on HealthyLife.net, you can find out details about upcoming or ongoing seminars and workshops. How about information for ordering copies of books or DVDs? That's also available at MarianneLive.com. Find out about core certification, certificate of responsible relationships www.marianlive.com core certification learning tools to attract build and sustain great relationships also sign up for marianne's newsletter to be informed about upcoming events and possible workshops or speaking engagements in the northern california area www.marianlive.com what does HealthyLife.net and Amazon.com have in common? Well, they're both available on the Internet. They both give great value. But most important, most of our positive program hosts and guests are accomplished authors. And their books are available from, you got it, Amazon.com. Now it even gets better than that. Because when you're listening on air to a HealthyLife.net host or guest, you can go directly to Amazon.com and you can order your book while you're still listening to your favorite HealthyLife.net program. So when you hear an author you like, go to the homepage of HealthyLife.net and click on Amazon.com. HealthyLife.net, the positive radio network. 
Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Stephen Gaines is with us. One of these things first is the title of his memoir. Stephen, before the break, we were talking about how you finally had to, uh, you just couldn't do deal with it anymore. You need somebody to know what your dark secret was about you, what then was referred to as uh, the, the sort of the curse of homosexuality. And, and so it began that, that the, what was offered to you was a kind of conversion therapy. You know, we see some of the, these um, clips in movies, and most of us gasp. We can't believe the kinds of things that they wanted to do to individuals. Uh, you had firsthand experience. Tell us about that. What, what was this like for you? Well, I mean, it wasn't called conversion therapy. There actually was no such thing at the time that people thought of. It, this was a psychoanalytic cure because homosexuality was considered a disease. So I was being cured, um, and I wasn't shocked. There was no aversion therapy. There was no really terrible things except that I had to sleep with women. I had to sleep with women. I had to sleep with a lot of women. I had to, you know, I came to think of heterosexuality as an acquired taste, like scotch. You know, if I did it enough, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I did it enough, I would learn to love it. Um, so, um, How did that work out? Well, you know, I, I, approached, I approached the female body as more of a tourist than a native. Mm. You know, I, it was like mm -hmm. a Jew in the Vatican. <laughs> I, 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 I knew it was beautiful, and it was really wonderful, but I just didn't quite understand the resurrection. Mm -hmm. so, I, I, so in any event, I had a lot of wonderful relationships with young women, and I, I did enjoy that, but I always felt that I was doing something wrong. I always knew it wasn't working. I always knew that I was hardwired. This was the way I was meant to be. But it was all this social pressure that was telling me I still had to strive and try to be heterosexual. So mm -hmm. the cure not, didn't work. Mm -hmm. All right. So here we are all these years later, and now, you know, you can't pick up any uh, magazine or online uh, publication without people talking about the changing gender climate. We have 42 options or more in terms of how we self-identify with our gender this is a big leap from where you came from. You were you were on the firing line. You were leading the pack when when we didn't even have names for this this kind of uh, information. You really were uh, a sacrificial lamb, uh, as it were. What what do you think has really changed, and how can your memoir help other individuals uh, at, at such an unusual time on the planet? Well, you know the definitions in themselves are defeating. We don't have to be defined. We are all uh, on some level polymorphous and, and, and feel differently. I mean, the fact that there are even 42 names, I mean, what difference does it make? You are who you are. You want to dress a certain way. You feel a certain way. I mean, that's, it's, it's fine. It's all healthy. Uh, it's all a part of life. You know, I forget who said it. Confucius said somebody said, nothing human is strange to me. And so I wish that they would kind of stop defining things, mm -hmm. and you're this and you're that, mm -hmm. and just let people be. And, and I think we've taken a, a, a bit of a step backwards this past year, but I think um, that it's irrevocable. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think well, – I didn't want to go there, but <laughs> Sorry. I think – I know. Me either, no, I but I had to make a sound. 
Uh, you know what? I've got to tell you something. It's, it, there's a plank in the Republican platform that religious parents should be allowed to give their children conversion therapy mm-hmm. and that it's the parents' business, nobody else's business, mm-hmm. not the state or the government or the law. Mm-hmm. So there are still parents out there who have the permission from the Republican National Committee mm-hmm. to try to pray it out of their children mm-hmm. or whatever else they're doing to mm-hmm. these kids. Mm-hmm. And that must, oh, that must make you demented. Mm-hmm. What horrible, horrible, horrible thing. You can't change it. You just can't. And it's fine. It's great. I am, I could not be happier now. I mean, I could be happier if I won the lottery, but I couldn't be any just more satisfied with my sexual preference, my sexual orientation, forgive me, than I am now. It's fine. What do you I have want one... to say? Yeah, what do you ahead. want to say to a, a, sorry, a young person or anybody who's feeling that they are still closeted uh, and just can't cope. Uh, They might be considering taking their own lives. What do you want to say to them? The Trevor Foundation. First of all, it's not worth taking your life over. It's really, really not worth taking your life over. Call the Trevor Foundation. They're in every city. They're all around the world. There are people on the telephone all the time. I mean, you can be whoever you want to be. You know, don't believe the priest who tells you it's a sin. Don't believe any of that. Nothing is a sin. You're a human being. And, and, and you're a good person, too, even though you feel different. And it's not so different anymore. There are a lot, a lot of wonderful, warm places for you to be, a lot of safe places for you to be. So the Trevor Foundation, it's T-R-E-V-O-R. The Trevor Foundation is really the leading place for uh, anti-suicide for for teens, gay and lesbian kids. Mm -hmm. All these years later, let's talk about your relationship uh, and the the relationship you have in uh, your culture. you know, do you, do you have a partner now? Uh, what do you, how do you move through the world regarding this, what many people still think of as an issue? What's different for you? Doesn't, it does, I don't even think of it. It's so, it so goes over my head. You know, uh, first, I'm not a professional homosexual. I just, I don't have only homosexual <laughs> friends. I, I, I do not know what the best hotel room is in Capri. I've never been to Positano. I can't arrange flowers, and the way my house is decorated, it looks like a hurricane blew the furniture up against the wall. I love it. That's so, so none of, so none of those things, you know. And so, I mean, I have the same number of gay friends as I think every straight person does, and uh, everybody knows that I'm gay. Uh, it doesn't phase anybody at all. I mean, I live like San Francisco's a bubble of humanity. I live in New York City and, and Long Island, which is also a great bubble of things. So I don't have to face some of the issues that people face where they're surrounded by more ignorant people. But um, I'm, in a, I'm in a relationship that's one for seven years now, and um, I'm very happy. And I just, you know, it doesn't matter that I'm gay. It doesn't matter to anybody, yeah. you know, that I'm gay. In fact, as I say in the book, if you ask me what my blessings were, the first thing I would say to you is I was born gay. Mm. I understand this world. I see this world. I have empathy. I have a, I have another extra dimension to me that can if that can make me a better person that that really did make me a better person and I'm so glad I was born gay I would never give it up for, ever 
So there's that. Powerful. No, no, it's powerful. Absolutely powerful. I mean, you know, a lot of people are arguing now that you know, most people are uh, bisexual, really, and uh, that this is a, a, a proposition listen, of our. I'm you're sorry? right. There's there's a scale of one to six. Not everybody's a six. Not everybody's a one. Yeah, Some yeah. people try. They experiment. Some people go back back to it a couple of times. Yeah. It's silly to paint people black and white. That's right. You know? Spend any time in jail and you'll start to wonder. <laughs> you know, you know that psychiatrist, that, that psychiatrist, Wayne Myers, I went back to see him 35 years later and he apologized. He was so mm -hmm. sick over it. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm so sorry I tried to mm -hmm. make you, I'm afraid I hurt mm -hmm. you. He felt mm -hmm. just terrible. And you know what? I said, we both tried. I wanted it. You wanted it. Please don't feel guilty. I accept oh. your apology. And people oh. were angry at me for accepting his apology. But oh. he, he saw I was a hurt little boy. He only wanted to help me. It turns out his other patient was Bruce, Springspe Bruce Springsteen. Oh, my. Oh Talk my. about six degrees of separation. Anyway, Seriously. I'll let you. No, absolutely. We're at the top of the hour. What are your parting words? What do you want to leave us with? Uh, be at peace. Be happy with who you are. It's absolutely fine. Be centered and protect yourself. Beautiful. Well, what a pleasure to have you with us, Stephen. You're welcome back anytime here on the Green Live. That's great. I had a terrific time. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everybody, sit tight. We're going to be right back for our wrap right after these messages. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Raynaud. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce? Yet, we spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, The Great Relationships Begin Within, Self-Inquiry Divination Deck, because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Lied and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself the gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Where can I contain all of my stuff? Hmm, how about this? The Container Store the original storage and organization store, and I found their link on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. They have containers for everything, including the kitchen, the bathroom, trash and recycling, traveling, spring cleaning, and dorm rooms. Just about everything you can think of to contain your stuff, the container store, right on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. HealthyLife.net, where positive overcomes negative. Welcome back, everybody. We're so glad, so glad you got to be with us today. Uh, what a delight. Stephen Gaines is with us. One of these things first, the title of his most recent book, a memoir. Check it out. Uh, go to stephengaines.com for more information. 
Uh, next week, same time, same place, Anna Carriott Barrett. Shamanic wisdom for pregnancy and parenting. That's going to be a very interesting show. You don't want to miss it. Meantime, go to Marianne Live for more information and find out what we are up to. We've got all kinds of stuff for you, books and gifts and uh, workshops and classes. And uh, stay connected with us. Sign up for our newsletter. And in the meantime, go do something good for somebody else. Don't let them know you did it. That's the third part of your practice. Uh, it's always a privilege to be connected with you. Thanks again for joining us, and I wish you every blessing until next time. Be well.